right, if you have a Bible, please open it up to Leviticus chapter 11. Leviticus chapter 11. We're going to continue in our series entitled God's House this morning. And uh, as we get started, I want to remind you of the structure of the book of Leviticus. And so the structure uh, is a chiastic structure that works its way to the center. And so in chapters 1 through 7, we have the ritual sacrifices that we see there, the five offerings there. Chapters 23 through 27, we see the ritual calendar, the holy days and feast days. We'll get to that a little later in the series. If you come a layer in, chapters 10, 8 through 10 are about the ordination of the priest, where chapters 21 and 22 are about the qualifications of the priest. Again, if you come in a layer, chapters 11 through 15 are about ritual purity. We'll be, in, we'll be looking at that today. And then also chapters 18 through 20 are about moral purity. We will be looking at that as well today. And then right at the very center of the book is chapter 16 and 17, which is the Day of Atonement, which means at the very center of Leviticus and at the very center of the Pentateuch, we see this most important and holy day where the sins of the people are forgiven for one year, where God provides a way for sins to be washed away albeit temporary, but it's pointing toward the atonement that is to come in Christ. Today, I want to talk about the purity chapters, both in Leviticus 15, 11 through 15 and then 18 through 20. And if you just did a read through Leviticus 11 through 20 uh, without understanding the context of Leviticus 11 through 20, you would probably be wondering why in the world this is in the Bible. And part of what I have to assume this morning, since we're covering so much material, is I have to assume that you have read Leviticus 11 through 20 at least. If you have not, I encourage you to go read it after this sermon so that you see the text and the context better. In chapters 11 through 15, there's a lot of laws around physical health, the physical health of the people, such laws as dietary laws or women's reproductive body fluids or sanitary laws. And all of this we see captured there. In 18 through 20, we see laws around the relational, moral, and spiritual health of the people. And there's actually a tone change that we will see in dealing with these two. But the first thing I want to point out is that God is the one who instituted these laws. If you go to Leviticus chapter 11, you start in verse 1, it plainly says, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. And so right here we see God give the directive to Moses and Aaron about all of these things that he is instructing them. We actually see it at the beginning of chapter 12 as well, chapter 13, and as it moves through. Now, the reason, though, why I think these laws are important and why God gave them, the purpose, the why behind them, I think to understand that, you have to go to Deuteronomy 28. In Deuteronomy 28, if you would please turn there, the words won't appear on the screen. Deuteronomy 28, starting in verse 1, it says something very, very important to the people as they are on their way to the promised land. Deuteronomy 28, starting in verse 1, says, And if, notice the word if, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I have commanded you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. So for Israel, they're to be set apart, be high above, they're to be an example to all the nations of the earth if they obey the Lord, if they obey the Lord. But he goes on and he says this, verse 2. 
And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Verse 3, blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb. Notice here he's talking about pregnancy and childbirth. That's important for what we'll see here in just a moment. And the fruit of the ground and the fruit of your cattle, an increase of your herds and the young of your flock. There he's talking about their food source, what they eat. And he's saying, I want, I want you to be blessed in this. Verse 5, blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall be you when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. Verse seven, the Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. Verse eight, the Lord will command the blessing on your barns and in all that you undertake and he will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Verse nine, the Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself, there's the phrase, holy to himself as he has sworn to you, if, 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 if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. God's heart for his people as he is unfolding this all throughout the Pentateuch is to bless them. And in order to bless them, he gives them certain rules, certain laws in order for them to live a healthy and sustainable life in the land to which they are going into. And the purpose of these laws, especially the ritual laws that we see first, uh, the purpose of these laws are to protect Israel from things such as a bad diet or dangerous animals to eat or diseases that can be transmitted. And we have to remember the context of what's going on here because if something's going on or if they get sick, they don't just go get a penicillin shot. Or, or if they eat unhealthy things and cholesterol goes sky high, they don't just go get a pill to bring it down. This is a very different world that they are living in. And so God is giving them these words of wisdom as they go about living as his people who have, uh, who have come out of uh, Egyptian bondage and they're going into the promised land. And we have to be careful that we make sure that we do not get generational elitism where we look back and we miss the wisdom of God's health and healthy laws that he is giving the people here. The first section that we see in chapter 11 of Leviticus has to do, again, with the dietary laws. And again, I'm going to leave you to read that. And here we see the distinction between clean and unclean animals. And the clean animals are the ones that are ruminant animals that graze, such as cows and sheep and deer. The whole point behind this is that they have a digestive tract that, are designed, that is designed to turn grass, which we cannot digest, into meat, which we can digest. And then we also see laws around fish, such as the fish have to have fins and scales, which um, really makes Thursday night's catfish dinner awkward. But anyway, um, <laughs> sorry, men's ministry. Anyway, um, they're not to eat, actually, filter feeders, as they are called, such as clams and oysters. And I know I lost some of you right there, too. It's okay. But again, remember... Uh, God is establishing something here that is very, very important. The biggest thing that we see is the consumption of blood. We see it in Leviticus 3, 17 and in other places. Now, not only is there fascinating studies that are done around the health of the kosher diet, but also 
uh, consuming blood is one of the things that distinguished Israel from all the other cultures around them. And the whole principle that we see that is operated on in Leviticus chapter 11 is the principle of prevention. The principle of prevention as it pertains to the people's health. Again, they can't just run down to Jackson Hospital or Baptist East and get a shot or get some medication or get some treatment of some kind. So the principle that is laid out there is the principle of prevention that would help them live a healthy life in the context of the promised land. And then we come to chapter 12, and again, this is a challenging chapter as it's talking about women's reproductive body fluids, among other things. And we see the distinction here in the language between clean and unclean. And a lot of times when we as modern readers hear the phrase clean and unclean, we think good or holy and sinful. That is actually not necessarily the case. You can be unclean and it actually have nothing to do with sin at all. It's about being in a state in which you are in a place where you can be around people and especially where you can approach God. The uncleanness that we see here is something that we actually understand more today because of the pandemic that we've just, we're still in and we've been going through. We understand the idea now for the first time, probably some of us in our lives, the idea of quarantining for safety, not just your safety, but the safety of others. But we see this play out for the safety of the mother and the child, in particular in Leviticus chapter 12, just like today. Whenever a child is born, many times the parents don't just take that child to church and just let everybody hold that new baby right off the bat, right? So we still have some of that in play today. But again, it's about the safety of the mother and child and the law of prevention here, preventing sickness in that culture. It was in the mid-1800s when Ignaz uh, Semmelweis found that childbirth fever could be prevented if those who were helping birth the child would simply wash their hands. That was the 1800s. He was called the savior of mothers and the father of infection control. Because up until that point, it was not a common practice to wash your hands often. So whenever you read the Levitical law, especially around purity and ritual purity, you see a lot of washing that is to be done. And again, this was for the protection of the people. We see things such as circumcision. The child, a male child was to be circumcised on the eighth day. And we say, why the eighth day? Well, it, it took seven days for vitamin K to build up in a child's body so that they would not bleed out whenever they were circumcised. Nowadays, whenever a child is born, a male child, to be circumcised, they just give them a vitamin K shot. Again, didn't have that in that day. The categories, though, I want to go back to this, of clean and unclean that we see here are not just positive or negative or good or bad, but they are about preventative safety. Now, as time passed, both in Israel all the way up into Jesus' day and then beyond in Jesus' day, we see the religious elite use these categories of clean and unclean really to oppress people and to keep certain people groups or certain types of people from doing things or being a part of temple life and worship there. But the abuse of that is what it is. The original intent of this was a way for the people to live safely in their culture, in their day, with the resources that they had. As we come to chapters 11 through 15, here we see sanitary laws around skin disease and practical ways in reducing the spread of that. And again, again, there are a lot of laws here that deal with skin disease that could be transferable to other people. Many times you see uh, everybody just kind of lumps this into the category of leprosy, although not all of it was leprosy. 
But yet again, we see in chapter 13 something that we understand a little more differently now. Because the chief principle that we see here in preventing disease from spreading from person to person in that culture, the chief principle was until you receive a diagnosis, you quarantine. You quarantine for the safety of you and the safety of others in order to prevent the spreading of disease. There's practical advice throughout here and all throughout the Pentateuch. You go to Deuteronomy 23, 9 through 14 and other places like that and you'll see things like whenever there is human waste, you should take that outside the camp. It should be buried away from people in the ground. Leviticus 15, it also talks a lot about proper bathing practices, especially around human intimacy. And we all know the diseases that are spread around human intimacy all around the world, even to this day. Again, the advice that is given here is highly practical. God has given them pri uh, uh, advice, given them laws to help them uh, understand the principle of prevention as they are living as a holy people set apart for him and as they are on their way into the promised land. So whenever you're reading Leviticus 11 through 15, remember that it is about safety and the safety of the whole person. God is concerned about us, not just spiritually, but he's also concerned about our body and our mind and how we live in the world where he has placed us. As, as Acts 17 tells us, that God determines the times and places in which people live. And he is concerned about the whole person, no matter their context or culture. Now, when we come to chapters 18 through 20, there is a shift that we see take place here. And the shift here is around the moral or relational purity laws. And if you turn over to Leviticus 18, I want you to see the context of what God is saying here through Moses to the people. In Leviticus 18, this famous chapter about sexual relations and many variations of that, it begins in verse 1, and it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. Verse 3, you shall not do as they did in the land of Egypt. Notice that. Where did they just come from? Egypt. So the first thing he says here is you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. So notice the context here of what he's saying. He's saying, when he gives this chapter that we all know around sexual relations of different kinds, he says to him, the context here is you shall not do as they did in the land of Egypt, which you just saw, you just lived in for 400 years. And you shall not do in the land of Canaan, which you are going into, and you're going to see another example of how to live and how human intimacy plays out in the land of Canaan. You shall not do as they do either. And if you go to the very last verse of the chapter, verse 30 in chapter 18, he tells them again, you shall keep my charge and never practice any of these abominable customs. Notice they're customs of the Egyptians that were practiced before you, pointing back again to the Egyptians. And so the context of what he is talking about here, what Moses is talking about, when it comes to the moral laws, particularly around sexuality, the context of that is a direct critique of the Egyptian culture that they had been living in and the Canaanite culture to which they were going into. This is the context of him giving these laws in this place because Israel is to live a different kind of life. 
They are to be a different kind of people. And the chief way that they were, visible way, that they were to be a different kind of people had to do with the issue of family. You see, the guiding principle that we see throughout the moral and relational laws of the Old Testament, the guiding principle goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, and it is one man, one woman. That is the context. And if they would just live into that, it would make Israel stand out among all the other cultures around them. But again, the context of Leviticus 18 is God is telling the people, you know what it was like in Egypt. And I'm telling you what it's going to be like in Canaan. And you are to be different. You are to live different kinds of lives. And so Leviticus 18 actually exposes all the multiple ways in which we break down the family unit of one male, one female. And it gives all the examples of how we break away from that foundation. It's Paul who pulls on the ethic of Leviticus 18 whenever he's talking to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at the end of verse 13, he says, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Verse 14, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power, meaning God gives us resurrection power to overcome the immorality that we have in our life. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never, Paul said. Or do you not know that when he is joined with a prostitute, he becomes one flesh with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. That's just called practical biology, by the way. The two shall be called one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one in spirit with him. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual immorality or the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And then in verse 19, that famous verse that we like to quote, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is within you? There when Paul is instructing the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 6, he's pulling on this same ethic that we see playing out in Leviticus 18. And God's ethic for that that would stand out to all the other cultures around them would be that marriage is one man, one woman. Now, you may be sitting there going, now, Chris, now, wait a minute. Isn't there polygamy all throughout the Bible? Of course there is. That's the honesty of Scripture, by the way. Notice that scripture is completely honest about its heroes, and there's only one perfect person, and that's Jesus himself. But there was a progressive, liberal Jewish scholar who actually said that if you read the Old Testament and you think that God condones polygamy, you actually don't know how to read the Old Testament. And the reason why she made that conclusion was because in every case, every case of polygamy, it ended in pain. I don't care how many television shows they make about it. In every case of polygamy throughout Scripture, it, it is painful. Why? Because it's not God's design. The chief ethic was one man plus one woman in the covenant of marriage. Now, right in the middle of this passage here, this section of 18 through 20, we see in Leviticus 19 something very important. Right in the middle of these relational and moral laws, Leviticus 19 becomes one of the cornerstones for the Judeo-Christian faith. 
And as you read through Leviticus, you may say, man, God says thou shall not a whole lot, right? You see that phrase over and over, and that's because we're so removed many times from the Old Testament that we forget what thou shall not means. Whenever you see the phrase thou shall not, it is so that you can, so that you can. This is very important. If you even, even if you go to the Ten Commandments, you know, do not covet your neighbor's spouse. Why? So that you can focus on your spouse and your house is flourishing. Or we see things like, uh, do not take the Lord your God in vain, the, the name of the Lord your God in vain. Why? So that you can praise him. Do not steal. Why? So that you can work and, and give yourself to that work and feel the satisfaction of work. You see, whenever you hear the phrase, thou shall not, it is so that you can because God is trying to Help his people become someone. Whenever you come to Leviticus 19, and starting in verse 1, it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. You shall be holy. You shall be. What God is saying to the people is now you can be. I've told you what it means to be holy. And I'm unveiling that for you, and now you can walk into it. Yes, they are to be set apart from the Egyptian way of life, and they are to be set apart from the Canaanite way of life, from the worldly way, yes. But it's not just about being set apart. That is only half of it. They are set apart so that they can walk in close proximity with God. That is the essence of holiness, walking with, walking in a relationship, living in close proximity with the Father. So many people today do not like the word holiness because, again, they only hear it as a negative. They do think holiness is just don't be like the Egyptians, don't be like the Canaanites, right? It's just a list of do's and don'ts. That is not the core of holiness. Holiness pushes us toward coming into this relationship with God and living in it and walking in it. That's why I use the phrase, obey my commands and walk in my ways. God wants us to walk with him through life in a healthy relationship. But some of us had bad experiences with this word holiness, maybe in the past or with people, uh, particular Christians in particular churches, whatever it may be. But please remember that holiness is not just about following a set of rules. That's not what it's about. It's not about the do's and don'ts. It's about walking in close proximity with God. And if there's anything that I have to give up so that I can walk in close proximity with God, then our heart is melted and we gladly give that up so that we can have him. That's the heart of holiness that we see play out throughout Leviticus all the way into the New Testament. But the calling of verse two in Leviticus 19 is you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then in verse three and four, he actually tells us what this looks like. In a 30,000 foot level, he tells them what it looks like to live holy, to live set apart lives so that they can live with him, what it looks like in the land into which they're going. They have all of this history with the Egyptians. They're going into a hostile land of the Canaanites. And he says, here's what it's gonna look like. Verse three, he says, every one of you shall revere his mother and father. And all the parents of teenagers said, amen. <laughs> and you shall keep my Sabbaths, plural. I am the Lord your God. The first thing he says, he says, here's what it looks like. If you're gonna be holy and set apart and walk in close proximity to me, it starts with you taking serious my design of family. 
You have to commune with, have communion, commune with your earthly family. And then, not only that, not only revering mother and father, the Sabbaths, the festivals, the feast days, the rhythms that God has given the people to stay in communion with him. Your earthly family comes into connection with your heavenly family in worship. And once again, heaven and earth come together in that moment, in that act of worship. He says, this is what it looks like to be set apart. Yes, there are some things you don't do, sure, but it's so that you and your family unit, as God has designed it, could come in and worship him. We can join in with the heavenly family. Then in verse 4, he inverts this and tells us the negative. If this does not happen, here's what it looks like. He says this in verse 4, do not turn to idols. Notice the language shifts. Here's what you should do, but now it's do not. Do not turn to idols and or, or, or make for yourselves any God cast of metal. I am the Lord your God. You say idols, God cast of metal. Isn't that the same thing? No, no, look what he's doing. He's pairing revere your mother and father with idols. And he's pairing Sabbaths with make other gods. Notice, he flips it. And whenever he's talking about idols here, he's talking about our personal cultural definitions that we have of family and how we redefine that. He says, don't make an idol out of an alternate family. And he's pointing back to the Egyptian experience in that moment. He's pointing back to the Egyptian experience of their past. And then he says, don't make any other gods cast of metal. Instead, keep the Sabbaths, keep the rhythm that I've given you, or what you will do is you will make other gods. And here's the thing, when you have other gods, you have other types of worship, and going into the Canaanite experience, what they will experience that's a part of worship is both sex and then also child sacrifice. It's no coincidence that the very next chapter, chapter 20, has a whole section on punishment for child sacrifice. Sacrifice. I've been to Israel, I've stood there, and I've looked at the altar where they, would, where they would sacrifice children and the blood would run down the altar out into the field. It is horrific, one of the most horrible places I've ever stood on on the planet because I knew what took place there. And he says, that's the land that you're going to. You're gonna redeem the land. It's gonna be good for you, but that's what's going on there. So make sure as you go into the land, the family unit is intact, that you are staying in rhythm with who I am and the festivals and the feasts and the Sabbaths that I've given you. You're gonna know as soon as you make an idol out of something other than the family unit, you redefine that in some way, it's gonna begin to unravel. And not only that, you will find yourself worshiping other gods and not me, God says. And he calls them, to holiness in this moment. Holiness, living a life with God, what he's saying to them is the only way that you can overcome the idols of Egypt and the gods of Canaan. It's the only way. And the result of what we see here is Leviticus 19, 18. This amazing verse that sets the whole, we see this ethic run all throughout scripture, this famous words of love your neighbor as yourself. That phrase that Jesus gave is the greatest commandment. That phrase that summarizes the entire law is found right here in the middle of the moral laws, relational laws of the Old Testament. And what God is saying to the people is that I want you to be set free. I want you to be my people to understand what this family looks like because it represents God's family on the earth. I want you to be set free to actually love your neighbor and show them what I am like. 
Now, you may be sitting there going, Chris, that's really great, that Old Testament stuff and, you know, all those laws, and that was really good summation of all that. Great job, well done. But is that really for me? 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13, Paul, uh, Peter writes these words. He says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. He says, you have to be ready. You have to be ready for action in this world. At the same time, be sober-minded. Stay calm. Stay calm. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, in the moment, you've got to be prepared for action, but you want to stay calm, and you set your mind, you set your hope fully on the fact that one day Jesus will return in all of his glory. Set your mind on that. Verse 14, as obedient children, obedience comes from transformation, not behavioral modification. So as transformed, obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. At one time you did not know, but now you know. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. He's saying this to the church that is being persecuted, very hostile situation that they are in. Verse 16, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Where did he get that? Where did Peter get that whole idea? It's a quote from the Old Testament. From the moral laws of the Old Testament, we are to live differently. And what was true, what was true for the ancient people of Israel was true in the first century as the Christians were beginning to evangelize the world now that they've been empowered by the Holy Spirit, which means it's also true for us today. The call is to be holy. And to, the call to be holy means you are set apart for a close walk with God. And the world is watching, and when they see it, it is a testimony to him. That's why we also see in Scripture, Peter writes that we are a peculiar people. There are ways in which we live in this world that are not of the world. It's very different. But if we, too, are not going to be succumbed to the idols of Egypt or the gods of Canaan, we too have to once again hear this call to be holy. When I say holy, you may hear perfect. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. But it's the right now present tense call that God is ringing out all throughout the earth for his people to rise up, be set apart so that they can walk closely with him once again. And that call is for each and every one of us. And even if you're sitting here today and you feel like you've blown it, either you've blown it in how you've lived your life, you've blown it with the ideology that you've been drinking from, or maybe you just thought you never had a chance, I'm here to say the same call to holiness is for you because you are set apart for a close walk with him. And the question is, will you answer that call? As Jared ascends the Babylonian ziggurat to the <laughs> keyboard. Would you bow your head where you are? Father, we come this morning and this topic is challenging. And there are some of us who are here this morning that are, we just say, I don't think I ever could be the person you've called me to be 
Or maybe we're looking into our past like Israel was and we realize that we had sold out to Egypt. Or maybe we're sitting here looking forward into the future, feeling so weak as we go into Canaan. God, wherever we are right now, Lord, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, the resurrection power that you have placed in us, that you would help us know that we are more than conquerors. The greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Lord, I pray that we would see that this call of holiness is for each and every one of us, that we are called to be set apart, yes, but it's unto a closer walk with you. And so whatever distance we may feel this morning, we pray that you would fill the gap with your presence, that we would receive you afresh and anew as we prepare to stand up, walk out the doors into our culture. God, I pray that we would be the people you've called us to be so that we will be able to love our neighbor as we love ourselves and therefore show you. Help us be so that we may do unto you.